About a dozen times over the last 20 years, I've gotten together with two good friends, and we have done um, a little exercise we call two plus one. It is, uh, it involves two affirmations and a challenge, and we sort of set it up like this. We work on this in advance, we give some thought and prayer to it, and then when we get together, we'll take a guy. There's three of us, so guy one will, uh, will sort of be in the hot seat, so to speak, and guy two will say, Look, here's something I, I have noticed in you that I want to affirm, that I want to I say way to go. I watched you do this, or I saw this in you, or I see this growing in you, and I just want to say, good work. Uh, keep it going. And then, same guy will say to number one, number two will say to number one, here's a, here's a challenge area for you. Here's something I, I think you may not be completely uh, uh, aware of. Here's a blind spot. Here's something I think you need to work on. And then... He'll finish it by saying, here's another affirmation. Here's another thing that I really admire about you. Here's something else I want to say. Keep, keep at it. Um, and then the third guy will say to the first guy, so we're staying with the first guy. He's in the hot seat. The third guy will go through this, uh, an affirmation, a challenge, and an affirmation. And then the first guy will have a chance to respond, to interact on this, and, and uh, to comment, and to push back, and whatever. And this, this can take um, 30 minutes, it can take two hours, as you can imagine. These, these can be very um, intense conversations. Uh, the, the, the affirmations are important, very important, but, uh, but you know, a lot of this pivots around the challenge area. Uh, these are not conversations you can have with just anybody. They've got to be real friends, got to be people that you can trust. Um, but um, but these are invaluable drills. Well, Full disclosure, they, um, you still have to act on what you hear, right? Perhaps, hypothetically, there may be one guy who keeps hearing the same challenge area from both other guys uh, year after year, and it involves uh, his tendency to pick up his phone in important conversations and to start texting or to, uh, uh, to answer calls uh, from other people during important conversations. And, and he may hypothetically respond by saying, wow, you got to sound just like my wife. She says the same thing. Um, so hearing this is different uh, than actually acting on it. Uh, so it's not like just having somebody point out your blind spots is all you need. But, uh, but this is an invaluable exercise. I bring it up here because uh, that two plus one is a little bit of the format that we have been seeing with Jesus in these letters to these churches. Now, they, I've said they, they follow a, a very similar format each time. He starts by introducing uh, the, the city that he's writing to, and then uh, he introduces himself. There's some reference that Jesus gives to himself that ties back to the Old Testament. It ties to Revelation chapter one. It somehow ties to the city. There's some uniqueness there. Then he shares... Uh, an affirmation, and then he shares a challenge, and then there's a warning, and then there's a promise. So this has been the format that we have seen with the, the first four letters, uh, Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira. So now, <laughs> today we get something different. Today we don't get uh, two plus one, and in fairness, it hasn't been two plus one. It's sometimes been four plus two or three plus one. Uh, but we don't get anything like that. Today we just get one. <laughs> and it's not an affirmation. 
Uh, Today, what we get is uh, some harsh words delivered to the people that are living, uh, that are making up part of the church of Sardis. Uh, He refers to them, Jesus refers to them as being uh, among the living dead, which has led more than one commentator to suggest that uh, this is the church of zombies. But um, there's, there's a lot to go on here, and I think it gets directed at us. So let me just say, by way of framing things up, Sardis was a very old city. Uh, it had been founded initially in 1200 BC. And if you ever do the tour of the seven churches in, you know, go on one of these tours, we had one a couple years ago in Asia Minor, and you go visit these sites. The site for Sardis is memorable um, for a couple reasons. So um, what we have is... <laughs> Okay, there we go. Figure out how to use the clicker, Mike. So what we have are some ruins down here, but up here is where Sardis initially existed. It was 1,500 feet up, and it was surrounded on three sides by cliffs, which meant that it was pretty impregnable. Uh, And it had been a city for, by the time of, uh, by the time uh, Christ is writing to this church, for 1,200 years. Now, it had fallen on two occasions. Uh, in the 6th century BC, it had fallen to uh, Cyrus, who actually factors in the book of Daniel. We see Cyrus mentioned. So the king of Sardis up here had done a raid against the king of Persia, Cyrus, and then had fled back to this uh, compound here uh, up at the top of this mountain. And, uh, and had holed up. And uh, Cyrus had chased him with an army. He gets in, they, you know, they, they get up at the top of the mountain, they lock in. Cyrus surrounds him. But there's, there's just no good way, right, to attack this place. And so Cyrus offers uh, a, a large reward to any soldier that can figure out any way in. Well, so they're, they're sort of uh, surrounding this. And one soldier sees this guy leaning out, sees, sees one of the people from Sardis leaning out over the wall of the city that is up there, and his helmet falls off. And then he notices that the guy emerges uh, down at the bottom out of this passageway. And so he notes the passageway, doesn't let himself be seen, he notes the passageway, and then that night he goes there and he confirms that this is a, this is a secret passage up to the top. And so he goes to Cyrus, and he says, I've, I found it. And so the next night, they go, and, and, and everybody, up in the, everybody up at the top of the mountain thinks that they're safe. And this is important, because this is going to play into the, the biblical text. So they are asleep. They are lax. They have dropped their guard. They're living on fake security. And they were ransacked. The same thing will happen again in 218 uh, B.C., and then in 17 AD, there's an earthquake that sort of demolishes the, the, the city up there. And so when they rebuild, they rebuild down here. Now, this is, uh, their, this is sort of the front of what they called their gymnasium and bathhouse, which makes um, LA Fitness look like, uh, you know, it's very underclassed. This is a temple to um, one of the, the Greek gods that were being worshipped there. And, well, notice this right here, and then I'm zooming in on this. This was a church that was built later. 
And when we were here, we went into this church and we uh, spent some time praying and we sang the doxology and there was about, I think, 20 of us on the tour. So uh, that's a special little church that was set up next to this uh, large Roman temple. So um, here's the deal. What we're going to see here is that the people of Sardis have this false security and that the church of Sardis has this false security. They're living off of better days. They're living off of their previous reputation. They have grown lax. And, um, and because they dropped their guard and lost their passion, they are in trouble. And Jesus has some very harsh things to say to them. He says among the, most, the harshest things he's going to say to anybody, he says to the believers in the church in Sardis. And he has nothing to say that is positive. It's as if Jesus brings a covenant lawsuit against the Christians in Sardis. So uh, you've heard me talk about covenants in the past. I said covenant is sort of, a, sort of like a contract, except it's, a, it's an agreement that is entered into between parties that trust each other, care for each other, love each other. And I, I've said... Uh, that the, old t that the Bible can be explained through a series of covenants. There's the covenant initially, the Edenic covenant, Garden of Eden, or the Adamic covenant with Adam. Adam being the name of the first person. But Adam is also, it's, it's a bit like our term Washington. So our first president was Washington. But when you say Washington, you, you often don't mean <laughs> George Washington. You mean Washington, all, the, all that representative government. So Adam is sort of, Adam, and it's also our representative. And so there's an agreement that is made with Adam. And then there's one made with Noah. And then there's one made with Abraham. And then with Moses, the covenant of the law, the Ten Commandments. And then we got a covenant that gets restated with David, uh, King David, that, that there's going to be someone who's going to come and sit on his throne and reign forever, right? And then in Jeremiah 31, there's a, an explanation of a covenant, a new covenant that is coming in the days ahead. And this will be the covenant that's fulfilled by Jesus. So you can explain the covenants, uh, or you can, you, can ex you can look at the Bible and explain the Bible through these relationships, agreements that are made between God and people who are, are going to love each other and care for each other. And I've also noted numerous times that the easiest way for us to imagine a covenant is to think about marriage, because marriage is designed to be a covenant. And when I am when I'm officiating at a wedding, I will oftentimes, it's sort of, sort of a throwaway line, a laugh line, but it's also got a punch to it. I'll say, look, I want you to understand what you're doing here. You are about to agree to a contract that no decent lawyer would allow their client to sign. Contracts generally limit your liabilities. Right? A, a lawyer wants to negotiate for his client the best terms possible. That's not what a marriage is. I take you for better or worse, in sickness and in health, for richer or for poor. We're, we're not limiting our, our exposure here. We're expanding it. And that's the nature of a covenant. And so uh, our relationship with God can be understood in the context of a covenant. But you have to understand, uh, there is a sense in which this covenant is to be honored. 
And Jesus, in essence, sort of shows up with a subpoena for the people in Sardis and says, you're not keeping the covenant. Like, you're not doing what you said you were going to do. I'm still doing what I said I was going to do. I will still be your God. But you are, you are not loving me. You are not honoring me. You are not worshiping me. You have become lax. And it's got to change. Now, it's hard to know exactly, as you'll see, it's hard to know exactly what it is that the Christians in Sardis are doing wrong or what it is that they're not doing right, but we can make some assumptions based on what we see. So um, that's the gist of what we got here. So this is Revelation chapter 3, to the angel of the church of Sardis, again, standard boilerplate lines. We've seen the angel of the church of Ephesus, and then we saw it to Smyrna, and then Pergamum, Thyatira. This is, this is who's delivering the mail. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. So this is Jesus, and it's Jesus as a judge. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know what to do with the, with the word seven. Some suggest that it's symbolic, and seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. Um, by the way, so seven is the number of perfection in the Bible. So when you back off of perfection... That would be the number six. And when you multiply something in the Bible, so the, the Greeks and Hebrews didn't, didn't have adverbs and adjectives in the same way that we do, so they would often just repeat a word. We see this with Jesus sometimes saying, truly, truly, I say to you, something like that. So when you repeat a word uh, twice, it's to emphasize it. When you repeat a word three times, it's really to emphasize it. We see this only once with an attribute of God in Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, we see it with the letter 6. 666 is, is infinitely imperfect. It's infinitely bad. So we've got, we've got all this symbolism going on in the book of Revelation that's hard to make sense of. But this is a description uh, clearly of Jesus. And by the way, this all sounds very much like the introduction that we saw to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. And then it's exactly the same. And then he's going to say, I know your works, which is exactly the same. But, but there's no good works coming for the people of Sardis. It's only good works and your perseverance is what, is what Jesus will affirm to the church in Ephesus. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. So um, my first reaction to this is, uh, Wow. This would hurt. I mean, this is, you know, <laughs> this is an open letter. So everybody, everybody's going to be reading, you know, the report about the church in Sardis. And you're like, oh, my goodness. Uh, we've just been called dead. So there's a real ouch here. This can't be good. Um, at the same time, as I thought about it a little bit more, uh, it's, it's more fearful in, for me. Uh, I think, by the way, that, that, that the church of, of Sardis is full of Christians. Some people say because they're dead that they're actually, he's writing to non-Christians that have gotten into the church. I, I, for reasons I'll explain later on, I don't think that's the case. Uh, I think he's writing to Christians, but they are, they are, he's just using hyperbole. It's as if they're spiritually dead. And, but the, but the, the gotcha here for me, for us, is that they're, there is a church that has a good reputation 
uh, you have a reputation of being alive, right, of being perhaps a church that's got good programs and a great website and, you know, pro community involvement. And people look at the church and they go, it's going and they're maintaining their buildings and everything's good. But from God's perspective, the church is not alive. The church is dead. That's frightening. So now we're going to get five commands. The first one, wake up. One of the reasons I don't think they're dead and they're non-Christians, spiritually dead, is because he tells them to wake up. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. You better attend to your heart. You better get this right. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Uh, now, Jesus doesn't tell us what they're doing wrong. We, we don't see, as we do in some of the other letters, that he you know, talks about the synagogue of Satan or he talks about the Nicolaitans or Jezebel. or He, he sort of names some things. We don't, get, we don't get the impression that they're necessarily teaching false doctrine. We don't see that. What we don't hear about, though, which is interesting, is we don't hear about any persecution that is coming their way. And in all these other letters, we've been hearing about how they are being persecuted. Now, when you go to the, the site, the archaeological site, and, and, and something to know about uh, what they built in Sardis is that it has the largest, and this is down where they built it um, after 17 AD, after the earthquake, when they rebuilt it, the largest synagogue outside of Palestine, ancient synagogue you know, ruins that's been uncovered outside of Palestine is found here in Sardis. So there's a big Jewish community here. But when you look in the synagogue, you see evidence of, of Roman religion, of Roman gods being worshipped. And, and in addition, you see Greek text, not Hebrew text. All of which suggests a couple things. It suggests that, that the Jews have engaged in some syncretism. They are worshipping other gods. And it suggests that there's a large Jewish population that is doing that that is not, perhaps, threatened by the Christians. We're reading between the lines here, but the suggestion is that the Christians in Sardis are going along. They're going along to get along. They're enjoying a sense of peace and a good reputation because they're not making any waves. They're not calling people to turn to Christ. They're not, they're not challenging anyone. And so this is, uh, this is sort of a false peace. Remember, this is the fourth command, remember therefore what you have received and heard, hold it fast, and the final command, repent. So this is the, this is the, the, the next time, I think this is the third time already, and we're going to see two more times when, uh, this is the fourth time maybe, that we've seen uh, a church be told to repent. And that means to stop, to turn around, and to go in the other direction. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know uh, at what time I will come to you. So the thief motif is, we find this in Matthew 24. It's a reference to Jesus coming as judge and you know, coming in, in the end and surprising people. But you also can see that uh, this all plays in with the whole history of, of Sardis that uh, that they went to sleep thinking that they were secure and enemy troops broke in like a thief in the night and caught them by surprise. Uh, yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. So there's, there are some Christians who have not engaged in sin. Uh, they will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. 
Um, so things are going well for them. White would suggest holiness. Again, it, the book of Revelation is, <laughs> some read it like it's a, it's a sort of a prophecy timetable. It's, it's a little bit more of a picture book with all kinds of colors and symbols and numbers, and we're left trying to make sense of it. Um, the one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. Um, I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. So this is really, this seems to be in stark contrast to what we see in Matthew chapter 25, where Jesus has the people that come to him and say, um, you know, Lord, Lord, didn't we, by the way, here we've got it. We've got a word being repeated to emphasize it. Uh, so they, uh, at the end, Jesus is separating people, and some of the people are like, wait, 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 we're not to go with the goats. We're, we're, in, the, we're in the club. Like we have, did, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not do these things in your name? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And depart from me, and I'm not going to stand and, and, and plead your case before God the Father. So the repetition of the term Lord suggests they think that he's really their Lord, but they are wrong. So this stands in contrast to that. Uh, and what we uh, I will not, I will not blot out their name. Uh, I will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, common way for these letters to end. So, high level, there's a few things that, uh, that I think emerge from this letter. First of all, we are reminded that looks can be deceiving. Um, we should know that, but often don't. The city of Sardis thought that they were fine, they looked fine, uh, they were living, unfortunately, on, on an old reputation, and all of that can be deceiving. There's a lot of things that can be deceiving. The second point is that um, oftentimes our biggest threats come from within. Uh, certainly Sardis was undone from, in a sense, from within. It was enemy coming upon them, but got into their camp in ways they did not uh, expect. I'll just say, uh, in light of this, um, in light of this call to repent, that um, speaking personally, I think uh, my biggest challenges are within, and I don't simply mean that it's the evil within me that is the problem. I certainly mean that, but uh, I think in many ways, uh, just as the biggest challenges for a family or for a community or for a country or for a church can be from within. The biggest challenge is I can be my own worst enemy. And this call to repent, this call to have a humble heart, this call to be soft to the things of God, it, it's, there, there's just got to be an ongoing refrain of that. And as a pastor, I will say, the easiest thing that happens in a church is that it starts to look inward. And the, there's just got to always be this push to be, to be calling on all of us to look out, to look at those that are hurting, to look at those that are lost, and to be a church that is looking from without. And I see some of that clearly evidenced here. Uh, the people in Sardis have grown comfortable. They're looking within, and it's within that they're being undone. Let me say just a little bit more about the lawsuit before uh, I, I wrap this up. 
I, I, am, I want us to be a bit unsettled. This is an unsettling letter, right? There's no good news here. I'm not, my job is not to make you feel good about a very harsh letter that comes from Jesus. Uh, perhaps this isn't a letter that you should be reading, but I think there's aspects of this for all of us. And um, the idea that, that God would show up and serve us with a subpoena for falling short is not generally the way we talk about things today. We talk about God's love and about God's grace, and I will stand by all of those things. But there is a lot in Scripture that talks about obedience, that talks about sacrifice, that talks about being focused on others, that talks about a zeal for the Lord. Um, and what we tend to want is the upside without the downside. What we want is uh, we want all the benefits of a of of a contract that come our way without the responsibility. We want all the guarantees uh, without having to, to honor our side of things. We want all the blessings without uh, the accountability. We want, we want the blessings and we, we want freedom from our responsibilities. So God says to the believers in Sardis, and he says to us, right, you need to honor the contract. <laughs> you need to honor the covenant. You need to keep up your end of the deal. This is not new. We see this throughout the Old Testament. The prophets are forever filing lawsuits against the people. <laughs> and they're saying, there is a covenant here. There is a deal. You're not keeping up your end of the deal. God proves faithful uh, even when we're not but that's not the thrust here of this passage. Jesus is saying, look, you need to honor the deal. And that means you need to follow me. You need to love. You need to obey. I was reading, just devotionally, I was reading this week, and I came to this passage, I think it's Luke 14, where Jesus is saying to a group of people, if you hear these words, right, if you hear these words, you are blessed. But it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It doesn't say if you hear these words, you are blessed, period. It says if you hear these words, you are blessed if you obey them. If you obey. We are expected to obey. We are expected to serve. We are expected to go to the end of the line. We are expected to sacrifice on behalf of others. We are expected to share our faith. We are expected to pursue God. And, and I, I realize that this is... That this is frustrating to some of you, and I realize that you're, you get tired of hearing these calls to, to do more or to repent. And in some senses, you're frustrated with the calls to repent because it reminds you of, of your need to repent. It reminds me of my need to repent. I, I want to acknowledge here, part of the frustration that you may be feeling comes from people like me over-promising how easy it is to follow God and how quickly we get better. The fact of the matter is, I think we dramatically underestimate how holy God is, how broken we are, and, and how much our actions matter. In God's plan, your actions matter, your thoughts matter, your decisions matter, and, and we are, you are on a trajectory based on the decisions that you are making. You are on a path. You will continue down that path. You're not going to get better if that's not the path that you're on. And the way to become more like Christ is to engage in the kinds of habits and disciplines that he calls us to. And it's about 
It is about reflection. It is about Bible reading. It is about meditation. It is about, uh, about being in accountable relationships. It is about prayer. It is about all those things. And if you're engaged in all those things, really, I think you're getting better. It, it's sometimes hard to see the progress. Other people in a two plus one have to point it out to us and say, wow, I've seen, I'm seeing growth in your life. Because we often don't see it in ourselves. But if you're not doing those things, you've got to understand the call, the clarion call from Jesus is, you are not keeping your end of the deal. And it is expected. So I'm filing a lawsuit. <laughs> you need to repent. You need to turn and go in the other direction. So let me end here by talking to two groups of people for just a second. Perhaps you're in this group. You know Christ. You are a Christ follower. And you have been following him for some time. But the, the challenge to raise your game, the challenge to repent and move forward, the charge that you're living on, um, on a previous reputation, <laughs> uh, that hits a little close to home. So if that's you, then I want to say, you know, look, God loves you. <laughs> he wants to be closer to you. And you need to repent, uh, turn around, and follow after him. And do the things that you know you need to do. And that's what you need to do. And so, uh, look, if we can help, uh, want to help. Uh, I want to say that um, you do need to attend to this. Jesus doesn't do halfway. He doesn't do part-time. That's not the covenant. That's not what you signed up for. And, and so uh, your involvement in, in an ongoing dynamic relationship with God is required. It is expected. It will cost you. There are no shortcuts. Um, let me remind you, when it comes to your relationship with God, it's not how you start that matters. It's how you finish. I want to call you to, uh, to let the words that Jesus directs to the church in Sardis, to the Christians there, uh, hit home and uh, reflect on those. Secondly, I want to speak to those of you who may not um, know Christ. And um, I want to say to you, obviously, if you don't know Christ, there's a sense in which these letters that Jesus is writing to these churches uh, you're reading somebody else's mail, but you say, I, I want it to be my mail. I, I actually, uh, I want to know Christ. I want that relationship that is based on love and grace. I, I, I've, I need more God in my life. However you want to articulate that. Uh, I want to say to you uh, that the way forward is not about earning it. Um, so you've heard a message on our responsibility, but let me be very clear, the way to a relationship with God is not uh, about faith and works equaling salvation. It's faith equals salvation and works. Works are expected. Works are required. They do not earn you God's love and favor, but they do cultivate the kind of relationship that you want. So the place to start is by yielding your life to God. It's by putting your weight down. It's by calling out to Christ. And I'm going to give you an opportunity uh, to do that as we end. 
Uh, I'm going to just, I'm going to recite a prayer very similar to a prayer that I prayed 40 years ago when I made a decision for Christ. It was a long process for me. Uh, it took a lot of, uh, I had a lot of doubts and a lot of skepticism. And, and if we can help with any of that, we can help, help you think about all of that. If you're at a campus, talk to your campus pastor. If you're not, I'm going to put my email up here. You can write to me. We want to help you take steps towards a relationship with God that will change everything. The book of Revelation, we're sort of looking at different pieces of this. The book of Revelation is this big celebration of a big Jesus. And, and when you see what is coming in history, in eternity, when you see who Jesus is, of course you want to bow your knee and to follow him. I'm going to give you a chance to do that right now. You can bow your heads with me as I pray. This expresses the desire of your heart. Pray something like this. Heavenly Father, I need you. I'm seeing uh, in a new way uh, that I am broken, that I'm selfish, that I'm sinful, that I, that I need help. I, I, I am scared of things that I have done. I feel guilt for things that I've done and things that I haven't done. And I am setting myself in front of you and saying, please, Forgive me. Lord Jesus, I, I want to follow you. I want to become more like you. I'm yielding my life to you. Um, I am asking that you would be my Savior and Lord. Guide and direct me. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as I said, if you're at a campus, please talk to your campus pastor. If you're not, uh, if you're watching online, you can write to me, M. Woodruff, at ChristChurchIL.org. So ChristChurchIL for Illinois.org. And we would love, if you've made a decision for Christ, we want to hear about it. If you've got questions or problems, we want to know about that. You can get a hold of us that way. God bless you. Have a good week.